Hi, everybody. My name is Beverly Burnett, and I am a very grateful, humble, recovering member of Al-Anon, the Worldwide Fellowship of Al-Anon in Alateen, and I am just so blessed to be here. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Uh, well, that means I'm 20 years older. <laughs> oh, that's the, that's the tricky part. <laughs> oh, well, I'm 20 years better. <laughs> <laughs> 20 years wiser, <laughs> 20 years more gray hair, <laughs> 20 years of more, de of more depth and love to friendships. Um, just, just so humbled, truly humbled to be here. And um, my prayer is that God relieve me of my fears and direct my attention to what he'd have me to be. And that's from the big book. But I am an old, 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 old Al-Anon. And so that was part of our literature. And a lot of those promises and those prayers are deeply embedded in my heart. Um, it seemed, I loved the afternoon meeting today. It seemed to have been really important to find out how many Jills were here and how many Carols were here. How many Beverly's are here? See? I am unique. <laughs> oh, there was? Yay! All righty. Okay. All right. Um, I, um, I also am a member of the Awakening Al-Anon family group in Flower Mound, Texas. And um, I came into the program totally unsurrendered and not thinking at all that I was powerless over anything on February 9th of 1981. So, anyhow, um, I didn't mean to stay. <laughs> I, um, I had come in here with an agenda. We all come in here with an agenda, right? We all come in with an agenda. I had one. Um, first of all, I didn't want to come at all. And then they threatened me that if I didn't go to Al-Anon, I couldn't go to the treatment center and see my son. And so they said, you know, you have to go to Al-Anon. So I says, well, I really can't because I work. And they said, we work, and we go to meetings. And so anyhow, um, I thought, well, I'm paying 10 grand to put that kid in here, and now they're telling me I gotta join a club in order to come to, for visitation. Um, so I didn't come in with a good motive or a good attitude. So um, I went to what I thought was gonna be 28 meetings um, over the 28 days that my son was in treatment, and then you were never going to see me again, and that would have been March 8th of 1981. And by the time um, that 28-day period was over, I was going to somewhere between 8 and 11 meetings a week. A week. And I have been doing that consistently. I did that consistently for the next eight years, and then I had the great opportunity to take care of my father when he was dying of cancer, and I had to cut the meetings back, and I was terrified. And there was an old, wonderful, wonderful woman in Texas. Her name was Arbutus O'Neill, and um, Arbutus, I believe, was our first delegate, and she didn't drive, and she went all over the state of Texas on a bus to visit groups. I mean, she was amazing. So anyhow, I was I was somewhere where she was, and um, I said, you know, I'm gonna have to cut my meetings back because uh, my dad's sick and I just can't do chemotherapy and radiation and go to all these meetings and everything. And she says, hmm, well, let's see if you have a program. 
And I was like, well, of course I have a program. She says, well, it ought to work then if you cut back your meetings. And I was afraid. She says, are you in the fellowship or do you have a program? And I knew I had a program. But to surrender the fellowship part of it was really difficult. It was really scared the daylights out of me. But I had to cut meetings back to four a week. And um, here I am, 38 and a half years later, and I still go to four meetings a week. And, um, you know, I, I adore Al-Anon. I have um, a passion for Al-Anon. I have, I feel humbled about the program of Al-Anon because it has done for me things that I never, ever could have expected get done. And I love the theme um, that I stood in the sunlight at last, and I really believe that Al-Anon has been given, it gave me the opportunity to stand in the, in, in the sunlight and come out from behind the mountain and to stand here in front of you, in front of God. But the sentence before that says that Bill was offered the opportunity to find a power greater than himself, and he had made a decision, you know, he didn't know where to look for that. And when they said you could find a personal God, it made it easier, and that's what it was for me. You can find whatever God you want, and I did. And, and I can't tell you how I did it, but all that I can tell you is, is that as time has grown on, I came from a child who came out of an alcoholic home where the only time that God was mentioned was as a threat, a threat. You know, if you do that, God's going to get you. You fell off your bicycle today, and God got you because you did this or you did that. So I was terrified of God. But what I also knew when I got into this program is if I couldn't find a power greater than myself, that I couldn't stay. Because the, the, the steps and the traditions all are, are related and, and guide us to finding a power greater than ourselves. And I didn't know how to go about doing that. And so over the course of time, I was um, somehow or other, I began to follow instruction and do what other people did. And slowly, slowly over the last 38 years, I have a power that is very personal to me. And I don't know about you, but I'm his favorite child. <laughs> he told me so every day. So, um, so thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Love that you did purple. That is in my honor. I'm mumbling here because I'm waiting for God to show up and then it'll, oh, these are not my boobs jumping. It's my heart. Um, <laughs> so Zan, thank you so much for calling me and inviting me and giving me this opportunity. Um, thank you to all the ladies that serve so loyally and with such dedication. Um, on the committee, Nancy and Terry and Chris and Chris, and, um, and for all the work. If, and I want to just tell you something. If you don't like something about what's going on here, sign up and be on the committee next year. They need, I mean, this is a small town, and these girls work really hard to put this phenomenal thing together. And, um, you know, they are, I don't know. I mean, that is, that's a dedication beyond anything that I have ever, ever been able to do. So um, God is with me, and I hopefully I am as surrendered as I'm going to be, and I'm going to start to tell you what happened, because I don't want to, I, I really um, promised I'd be done by midnight. <laughs> which would be two in the morning my time. So anyhow, um, 
So I was born in Chicago, Illinois, in an alcoholic home. And for all the time I had always told you that, I thought my dad was the alcoholic and my mom was the person who would have greatly benefited from this program. However, she did not ever make it here. I am the first surviving member of my family to have um, recovery in this program. So for that, I'm grateful. And have any of you ever thought, why me? Have you ever thought, why me? Why you is because you've done the footwork. And there's a guy in Texas, he said, we came all the way in and, we and sat all the way down and we stayed. And that's why you. That's why me. Because I found something here in, in the middle pages on March, somewhere in the middle of March in the ODAP book, it said somewhere down deep inside I knew I was home. And this is my home. And Seaside is my happy place. <laughs> and um, anyhow, so thank you for letting me come to my happy place. Uh, so my dad, I thought, was alcoholic. I wasn't sure. A couple of years ago, I pulled a box down off the closet shelf. And I don't know how you are, but I think all of us, we, if the first 20 years of our, of our married life, we collect junk in the last 20 years, we give it away. <laughs> so I'm in the give it away period of my life. Um, so I got this box down and I was going through it and it was, a, it was a box of all my dad's personal papers. And I had completely forgotten that that box was up on the shelf. And in there were some love letters to my mom and, um, you know, and I, just love, I love you so much and I'll never do it again. Um, if you'll just take me back, I promise it'll get better. I, 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 know, I know I should never have done that, but I won't ever do it again. And I thought, yeah, that's our people. And, um, and then in that box, there was some other papers. There was a marriage certificate and my dad's death certificate and, and a lot of other things, but in that box also, was um, he had spent the night in the Santa Barbara jail for drunk diving at the age of 65. He, he, um, his car was impounded, he had a fine, and he was on two years of probation. Do you think I ever knew anything about that? He lived in my house for almost two years before he died. I never knew that. And actually, in thinking about it, I think we took him out of the state of California while he was still on probation. I'm, <laughs> But, you know, I didn't know, you know, I didn't know. So um, my dad was an alcoholic. He, he was, so I feel confident in saying I was raised in an alcoholic home. However, my mom was the person I was afraid of. I was not afraid of the alcoholic. He was a good time Charlie. I must take after him. <laughs> I, I mean, I, um, I, he just, anything, my dad had a following. And, and whatever he said he was going to do, you know, everybody says, oh, Phil's going to do it. I'm going to go too. And I guess in 1941, they got drunk and signed up to go into the Navy during World War II. And they, all the cousins and all the uncles went with him. And they were all gone. <laughs> and, um, so as a child, he went in, I was just barely born, and um, my, my mom went to work, and he went into World War II, and my grandmother took care of me. And she was the person that I just absolutely know loved and protected me more than anything until I got my first Al-Anon sponsor. So um, my childhood was much like it, it, like if you just take the first 17 pages of From Survival to Recovery, that was my childhood. It was up and down, and you know, you walk on eggshells, and you, you don't know when it's going to be a good day and when it's going to be a bad day, and that's kind of the way that it was. Um, 
I never knew one morning I would be sitting there having breakfast and I'd get up and go to school and my mom would kiss me goodbye and, you know, have, have a nice day. And the next day, um, she could be restless, irritable, discontent, feeling, as it says in that pamphlet, uh, understanding ourselves in alcoholism, we feel unwanted, unloved, and alone. And she could have been feeling like that, and she would grab the cat and nine tails and just beat the snot out of me and then send me off to school, and I'd be full of welts, and my hands would be shaking. And I never knew what caused that. I never, ever knew it. I never knew what I had done wrong from one day to the next. And that's just kind of the story of alcoholism. It, it leaves you feeling um, just really kind of wobbly. But I did what kids often do who are raised in active alcoholism. We find happy places. We find places where people will feed us a, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and offer us to stay overnight, and we can play the piano and run around in the yard and actually sit on the furniture. And all those things, you know, when you're living in a home where everything has to be perfect because it's not perfect, you can't sit on the furniture and you can't bring the kids home because you never know what your mother's going to say or how your father's going to act up. So we become isolated even as children when we're raised in alcoholism. There's rules, there's unwritten rules, there's defined lines, and we learn them very, very early in our, in our childhood. So when I was seven years old, close to seven and a half years old, my sister was born, and um, I, you know, I don't know what to tell you, I figured it would be a good idea if they just took her back wherever they got her. <laughs> I don't know. Um, I, so now, I don't know how to say I'm afraid. I don't know if you're gonna love me. If she, you know, how can you love two things at the same time? So I felt because she was new and they were bringing her presents and she had all the attention that my, my way of thinking is that now nobody loves me. And so I guess, you know, in today's language, I acted out. And the only person that I could act out to that would be tolerable as she grew up, I acted out by, by being very abusive to my sister. Three years later, my brother came along and it just was not a big deal. Um, by then I was almost 10 years old and, you know, I'd really kind of found my way in the community. Um, so I found my happy places. I, I was very athletic. I still am, for an old lady, I'm still very athletic today. And um, I love being outside. You know, my, my theme would really be, don't fence me in. <laughs> Just don't fence me in. So um, my dad was very functional. He, um, he ended up going up, you know, getting better jobs and promotions. He was a tool maker, blue collar. And um, he did very well at what he did. And um, in, when I was a senior in high school, he had an opportunity. He lost his job, and they offered all of the toolmakers an opportunity to be um, uh, design uh, to design the tools. So we moved to Ogden, Utah, in my senior year of high school, and I was accustomed to living my life according to American Bandstand. You know, Bill Haley and the Comets. You know, we were wearing saddle shoes and dancing at the youth center, and I had my little life carved out for me. And of course, what my mom says is it's gonna be better in Utah. We're gonna live happily ever after in Utah. We're gonna leave alcoholism behind. We're gonna leave Uncle Jimmy and all the cousins and you know all of this drunken behavior, and we're gonna go over the Rocky Mountains to Utah and it's all gonna be better. The message that I believe I heard in that is if you move, it gets better. 
So there's that thing about geographics. You know, if we do this, it's going to get better. If we buy that, it's going to get better. I'm going to feel better. If I cut my hair, if I dye it red, if I, you know, if I wear a long skirt, if I wear a short skirt, if I'm naked, you know, if that'll be better. <laughs> Any, not anymore. That'd be scary. <laughs> so um, I, I look pretty good with clothes on. <laughs> So we move over, to, we get to Utah, it's a big production, we go over on the train, get off the train, my father meets the train drunk, and it started all over again because alcoholism is a family illness, and it attacks the families, and there's no way of escaping it, there's just no way out. So we got off the train, my mother and father fought like crazy. It was the worst year of my life. We rented a house and then they bought a house. I ended up in two high schools. And it just couldn't have been, I mean, I'm wearing poodle skirts and a duck tail and saddle shoes and those little Mormon girls are wearing everything that matched. And the only conversation you could have with them is what religion are you? And if you weren't a Mormon, they didn't have anything else to do with you. So there was all this, alcoholism going on at the house. I am very lonely. I'm feeling very unwanted, unloved, and alone, and I don't fit in anywhere. And so basically, I kind of just really didn't go to school much, but somehow or other had enough credits to graduate. When I turned 18 years old, my dad took me to where he worked and got me a job. And I don't know if I was there a month or a week. I have no idea, no recollection. But in comes this guy. Now, I love cocky guys. The big book says they're filled with fear. And the cockiness covers over the fear, but I don't know that. I still don't know that today. I really still don't. Those cocky ones, whoa. I mean, it's like magnets. <laughs> it was kind of like Jill said in the meeting today. She's the one other Jill, the alcoholic Jill finds the Al-Anon Jill. <laughs> you know, it's like, we just do that. <laughs> we, we know how. <laughs> so um, anyhow, I'm there, and this guy walks in. He's got a crew cut and a ducktail and a sport coat and a tool bag, which means he has a job. And this place is pretty remote, so he's got a car. All my needs are met. <laughs> he smoked. Oh my God, he could smoke a lot. <laughs> yeah, a, a real lot, actually. But that was part of the qualifications, and he had to be drunk. Isn't that crazy? I went out with a guy who didn't drink one time, and he, he took me in his backyard in a clean car. Well, he picked me up on time in a clean car, and he took me to his house, and he was going to teach me how to play chess. And the cherry trees were in bloom, and the Victrola was playing classical music, and he sets this all out, and we had some herb tea, and I'm thinking to myself, this is boring, and I can't <laughs> wait to get out of here. And I didn't ever want to see him again, ever. I wanted that one with the crew cut and the cigarettes and, you know, the sport coats. So... He left and I said, who was that? And they said, that's George. And, and they said, he just got married about six months ago. But you know, things aren't good. Now that should have been my first clue. Right there. Oh no. He's sleeping in his office and his clothes are hanging on a pipe and he's on a cot. And my next thought was, oh. If he was mine, I could make him happy. 
Now, I'm 18 years old. I'm 18 years old, and I think I have the ability, coming out of an alcoholic home, progressed alcoholism, a lot of stuff going on there that, you know, I mean, just anybody in the room can put those sentences together. And, and I think I have the ability to make this guy happy. Well, he was in and out and in and out, and I was just falling in love with him. I, you know, we have the, the amazing ability, and it says so in How Al-Anon Works. They're on page, I think it's 37, I think. It's called Struggling with Reality. That has been one of my biggest defects of character. I absolutely struggle with reality. Not so much anymore. I'm coming, I mean, I'm really doing a little better with reality, but up until not so long ago, you know, fantasy was my happy place. <laughs> and, and what it says in there, it says we can create the outcome. And boy, a lot of us that are living in active alcoholism and in alcoholic homes, we need to be able to create a happy outcome. And so we do live in fantasy. Um, and that's where I was. So while this guy's going in and out, and he's sleeping on the cot, and then he's back in the big bed, and I was never happy about that. I got jealous that when he got back together, and then he'd be back in the office, and I'm like, yes, and you know, that all went on. And then one day, he comes in the little area where I worked, and he brushed up against my ear, and he says, I'm officially separated from my wife, and I'd like to take you out on a date. Clue number two, I was a rebound romance, and he was doing 13-step work. <laughs> so that's how that went. But I, I mean, I was like all in. Yes, I'll go. He comes Friday, goes in the kitchen with my dad, and before we go out on the date, he is more drunk than sober, and I'm comfortable. I mean, is that not weird? But that's how we are. Because we become accustomed to the drama and the chaos and the confusion and the hitting and the silence and the sound, Albert, there was a guy in Dallas, he's passed away, his name was Albert, and he said alcoholism has its own sound. And we had it, it had its sound in my house. And George played the music. I mean, he could, he did it, he did the whole deal. So we dated for a year and a week, and when I was a little over 19 years old, I married him. Nine months and two days later, I gave birth to my first child that I did not know how to take care of. I had no idea how to take care of a child. But what I can tell you is, as a little girl, I always felt ugly, for one thing. I have a picture of myself as a little girl on my bookcase, and I was stunning. I was the little girl that if you saw me in a grocery store, you would say, that is the cutest baby I've ever seen. But I felt ugly. And it wasn't until a couple of years ago when I put that picture out and I said to myself, she was a beautiful little girl. But alcoholism and living with the effects of alcoholism make us feel ugly, unwanted, unloved, and alone. And I felt that way. And so um, the very first day we went, to, we got married on a Saturday night. We went and stayed in Salt Lake City at a motel. In, come back Sunday, we went to work Monday like if nothing happened, but I got pregnant. Didn't know I was supposed to take those birth control pills. <laughs> And nine months and two days later, I had this baby. But Monday night, he did not come home from work. 
and I made the tuna casserole, and then I added more milk, and then I made the phone call, and then I added more milk, and then I made the phone call. The first phone call went really well. He called me, honey, and I'll be home soon. The second phone call changed a little. The third phone call got a little snarky. And by the fourth phone call, it got downright mean. And I had a feeling in the pit of my stomach that said, oh, no, not again. Because you see, I think I married him. Part of the reason I married him was to get away. But now that's nothing conscious, nothing at all conscious. It's not until I come here and I read the literature and I hear you share your story that I start to put one and one and two and two together and piece together my life as it was, because alcoholism, you know, if you get a puzzle and it's got 5,000 pieces in it and you throw it out on the table, it takes a long time to put that puzzle together. And that's, I'm still in the process of that. I've been here a long time, and especially this last year and a half, I have really worked, prayed, and, and developed, and, and changed, and, and prayed some more to learn who I am who I am and to put those pieces together of this new person. So anyhow, um, time went on and I had a second baby two years later. Alcoholism progressed in the family. I'm the one getting angry. I'm the one who's, who's abusive to my children. I'm the one who's screaming at, and the neighbors can hear me. George just walks in drunk and passes out on the sofa. Now I thought that he didn't love me. I didn't know until I got to you that he passed out. And again, it made me feel unwanted, unloved, and alone. Why wouldn't, why wouldn't a man want to come to bed with his wife? You know, why wouldn't we want to snuggle? Why, why would you want to sleep there? It was so confusing to me, and I took it real personal. I took alcoholism personal, and if you do that, it makes you sicker and sicker. And the sicker we get, the more angry we get. And I became very angry. And to a point where one day, even though I had promised myself that I would never, ever hit my children, one day in a fit of rage, I go into this white-hot rage. I, have a, I don't have a stop button on it, and there is a point of no return. And I don't know how many of you are like that, but some of us in this room are. And all I can tell you is that I am glad I'm not serving time in some federal penitentiary. And, and, and I don't say that funny. I mean it. But I picked up a little kid and I grabbed a wooden spoon and started to beat the snot out of him. And I heard the voice of God. I did not believe in God. I did not have a personal relationship with God. But I can tell you today, I heard the voice of God. And he said, if you hit him again, you'll kill him. And I knew that. And I, in, in horror, dropped the spoon, dropped the kid and made a promise. I'd never do that again. But the problem with being a, a person who's in progressed alcoholism is you don't have the ability to change your life. These 12 steps give us the ability, a sponsor, the literature, gives us the opportunity to change our life. But in our own thinking, we just keep recycling the old idea all the time. So I made the idea, I made the promise to myself, I'd never hit him again. But you know what? I became abusive with my tongue, you know, with, with my behavior, with my actions, with my attitudes. And I know that those behaviors and those actions and those attitudes have scarred my children. And there are still scars. My son is 57 years old. Some of you have met him. Um, he's 57 years old, and I know that he still carries some of the scars from my behavior when he was a child. 
not the alcoholic. And it says in our literature, you know, that the alcoholic's behavior is predictable. You know, they know when he's going to come home mean and drunk, and they go in the bedroom and shut the door. They know if he's going to pass out on the couch. They know all those things. They know he's not going to eat dinner. They know those things. But they don't know how I'm going to react. I'm the one that causes the problem. I'm the liar. I'm the cheat. I'm the thief. And when we did the inventory, you know, and you look at some of those things, um, I thought, you know, I never walked into a store and stole anything. But it was called to my attention, yeah, yeah, Beverly, you were a thief. You stole those boys' peace of mind. And that's critical. That's critical when we do that to another human being. So time went on. We ended up going up the corporate ladder. We ended up in Texas in 1978. And the qualification for a home to buy was that it had a bar. Yeah. So it does. I've turned it into a place where I brew my coffee today. And I save all of my conference cups and all of my favorite cups, and they're all in there where the booze used to be. And it's my little, it's my little happy place. So <laughs> anyhow, so time, we're, we're in Texas, and um, it's weird. It's weird at my house. George isn't coming home. He's making more money than he's ever made before, which was a big deal. Um, but my kids are acting weird. And they're, when we moved to Texas, they were 14, almost 16 and almost 14 years old. And I didn't know at that time, because it's all that I know, that they were full-blown drug addicts and alcoholics at that age, that they had started drinking and drugging on a beach in Sparta, New Jersey one of the places that we had lived. When we moved from Sparta, my next door neighbor came and got me and she says, Beverly, come on with me. I'm gonna take you down to the beach. I only lived from here to the wall from the water. And she says, I don't know that you've ever gone down there. I lived there five years. She says, I don't think you've ever been down there. And I says, oh my God, I can't go to the beach. I've got to clean and the packers are coming in. The movers are coming in. I got blah, blah, blah. And she says, you know what? You just come with me. And she grabbed my arm and she, put me in her car. We go down to the beach. She carries out two lawn chairs, a coffee mug, and two cups. And she puts it out on the little boat dock. And she poured me some coffee. She faced the chairs to the water. She says, I want you to look out there and see where you've been. Because she says, I don't think you know where you have lived for the last five years. And that's what, that is how the effects of alcoholism. I sat out there and I thought, oh my God, there's swans and sailboats, wow, you know, little fish in the water. I had no idea, no idea. So we get to Texas, so I have no idea. I got a couple of drunk kids. Now, the fact of the matter is I should have known that. The, the back of the pickup truck was full of beer cans. Well, um, they made a pyramid of them in their bedroom and I dusted them. So, um, <laughs> denial is our friend. Denial and delusion is our friend until we get here, because what would we do if we knew? What would we do if we knew before we got here and had the 12 steps and, and found a relationship with God? We would have no alternative but to take heavy meds or, or, or destroy our lives or something. And so, um, I mean, there were a lot of evidence that these kids were in trouble, but I could not see it. I could not see it. So how did I get here? I was working in a bank. Um, I was a liar, a cheat, and a thief, but I wasn't taking their money. 
Um, I just couldn't get to work on time. I made a lot of excuses about why I couldn't get there on time. And uh, one day my friend, whose husband was probably also alcoholic, she wasn't at work for a few days, and when she came back, I said, Margaret, where have you been? And she said, well, um, my son almost died of alcoholism over the weekend, and, but he, he did survive, and they took him up to Denton to Westgate. And they're going to keep him up there for 28 days, and I could swear I heard her say, and then he'll be better. And so I says to her, Margaret, what does alcoholism look like? And she started to tell me what alcoholism looked like, what Tim did. I says, what does he do? What does it feel like? You know, what? Well, she starts to tell me, and for a split second, that wall of denial opened up, and it's, I could see all of it. I could see the pills in the washing machine. I could see the pyramid of beer cans. I could see the screaming and the yelling and, and the kids that weren't minding. And I mean, just the dirty clothes and the filthy bedrooms and the, you know, the food that they were eating or not eating and the friends that they were bringing around the house. And I saw it all and it was like, oh my God. And it slapped shut like that. I know it wasn't more than 10 seconds, but I saw the whole thing. And I don't know why I did it, but I looked at Margaret and I said, could I have the telephone number of that place? And Margaret said, yeah, I'll get it for you. So she brought it for me. The next day I called my husband and I says, I think, I think Scott might have a problem and I'd like to go to Westgate. And we went up there and they evaluated us and they sent us all home. And they said, yeah, we're pretty sure somebody in this family's got alcoholism, but we don't know who. <laughs> and I was really put out by that. Because, you know, Babs, and, Babs was another one of our wonderful old Al-Anons in Dallas, and she said she was the keeper of the fly. I was the keeper of the fly. I had to make sure that he was zipped up and, and looked good. And so you can't, you can't partake in the nectar of the gods <laughs> if you're making sure his clothes are zipped, right? Um, so I didn't drink. Um, well, you know, here and there a little bit, but I'm going to tell you, if I got tipsy, I was done because you cannot keep, be in control and be tipsy at the same time. So anyhow, I was the keeper. Um, so when they told us to go home that somebody was alcoholic and, you know, and all four of us got sent out of there, I, my feelings got hurt, but that's, <laughs> my feelings get hurt really easily. Um, so we went home, and that was somewhere around the end of January, and by the ninth day of February, my son, I could tell he had, was noticeably using drugs, and I also realized that he had taken some things out of my house that I absolutely knew I owned, because they had the great ability to change my reality. They, they had the ability to tell me that we didn't own what they took. And, 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 I, have, and I have the ability to overcome my perception of what I know to be true if they convince me that my reality is wrong. And so I was the one who was going crazy because I'd think, I know I had that. And they'd go, no, Mom, I don't think so. And then one day, one of them came up to me and they said, you know, Mom, something is seriously wrong with you. <laughs> um, you're seeing things that aren't there. And you know, I didn't know. I didn't know. So on the ninth day of February, when I confronted my son, he went to school, and shortly afterwards, he called me, and he says, I'll go to Al-Anon, or I'll go to treatment, and, and, and I says, okay. So he went to treatment rather than the Denton County Jail, because what I realized is that not only had they rob, robbed my house that weekend, they had robbed many homes in Highland Village, 
and the other kid was already in the Denton County Jail, and my son saw treatment for alcoholism as an easier, softer way to go. And so he says, come and get me and take me to, take me to Denton. So I did, and that's when they told me I had to go to Al-Anon. And so the journey began for me, and for the number of, well, probably a year and a half. Um, but let me, while we were involved in that 28 days, my husband stood up after reading uh, the story in the big book called The Jaywalker, and he saw himself getting hit by that bus. I had no idea he was challenging his drinking. I had no idea he had ever given it a thought. And um, he read that story about the jaywalker, and he got in the car that day, and he says, on Friday night when they offer chips, I'm going to get a sobriety chip. And I said to him, don't you dare, because I've got the youngest kid in Westgate, and you are not going to stand up in front of all those people and tell them that you, too, are alcoholic. What are they going to think of me? Um, so I had no image, but I had an image problem. So... <laughs> Anyhow, he did it in spite of me, and so um, he, um, he was sober all along, ever since he was, he was sober. So, um, and then um, on March 30th, we were getting ready to go to a meeting at the Alpha Group, and the oldest kid come in drunk at 8 o'clock on a Sunday morning, and I said, oh my God, you're drunk, and Scott said, he's worse than me. So I went to the meeting, and I says, what do we do now? I mean, he, he, he can't be here. Scott's going to meetings. George's sober. I'm going to Al-Anon meetings. What am I going to do? And they told me I could ask him to leave. I didn't know that. And, and, and I said, leave? I said, he's only 17 and a half years old. And he said, they said he's old enough to make his own decisions. And he can decide whether he wants to drink or if he wants to, you can throw him out. And I said, oh, my God. And he says, Beverly, we're offering you a choice. I had never been offered a choice by anybody ever. So I went home armed with Bill's courage, Bill's faith, and Bill's passion for recovery, and I stepped into my son's bedroom at 4 o'clock in the afternoon where he was still passed out and sleeping, and I said to him, wake up. And I said, I need to talk to you. I said, if you would like to join us in recovery, great. And if you don't, on Tuesday, you have to pack up and get out of here. Well, he got real sober real fast. And um, he said, what do you mean, Tuesday? That's only, that's only two days from now. And I said, yeah, but Bill said, don't give him a lot of time because he'll schmooze you right out of that decision. And um, so anyhow, he, he left at 100 miles an hour, and I thought, oh, my God, he'll never come back. Well, here, I'm going to give you a big piece of information. You can't get rid of him. Never. They, they come back. They know a good thing when they got it. And so um, he called me from work, and he said he'd go to one AA meeting, and I got on my soapbox, and then I heard the voice of God again. And he, God speaks to me in, in words I understand. And he said, shut up. <laughs> so we took Stephen to a meeting the next night, and he was not dressed according to my husband's standards of appearance for Alcoholics Anonymous. He was wearing a Coors hat, a tequila t-shirt, holy jeans, <laughs> and what they used to call titty shoes. And we walked in the front door. Well, we were in the car, and my husband looked at him in the rearview mirror, and he says, well, I'm not going to Alcoholics Anonymous. He's going to go home and change his clothes. And Scott said, no, he's not, Dad. We're going to be late. And my husband got out of the car on FM 407 and left us parked there. 
Now, I think I ought to chase the alcoholic, but the new young sober kid says, Mom, get in the car and drive. So I took us to the meeting. When I walked in the front door, Millie grabbed me, and she says, who's that? Millie just turned 91 years old a couple of days ago, and she is the most active member of Alcoholics Anonymous that I know. And um, she goes, hey, who's that? And I said, well, that's our oldest son, Steve. And she says, he's half dead. <laughs> You know how they talk in West Texas? It's weird. So she said, you go to Al-Anon, we'll take care of him. So I go get some coffee, and then I peeked into the AA room just to make sure they hadn't escaped. And I watched my young son nudge my older one, stood up, and he told him to get a desire chip. And my older son got a desire chip that night, and today, he has 38 years of consistent sobriety. Has nothing to do with me. All I did was continue to go to Al-Anon and to practice the 12 steps as best to best of my ability. But he got in the center of Alcoholics Anonymous and stayed sober. He went to Iki Paw and he went to the 24-hour club. And I heard his first prayer that night. Bobby told him to go home and thank God for that day of sobriety, and I heard that. I watched Bobby make the most magnificent 12-step call on my son. The second son did not, the young one didn't stay sober. We put him in another treatment center. He came home and he was drunk again in a couple of days. And at 17 and a half years old, we put the young one out, and he never lived with us again. I had the courage and the faith to know that he was God's child, and I handed him two grocery sacks from Tom Thumb, and I said, you're going to have to leave. You cannot bring your alcoholism into a sober home. And he threw a few things into that shopping bag, called me a few names, punched a hole in the wall right above the thermostat, and he left. And, and you know what? The ODAP book, I had already become accustomed to reading the ODAP book, and it says, if they call you a tree, are you a tree? And I knew that was alcoholism speaking. That was not my son speaking to his mother. That was alcoholism speaking. And I asked God to bless him and keep him safe because he was his child. And sometime later, he ended up getting married to a gal that he met in school. Um, I had stopped by that time enabling and I was detaching with love. It was the hardest thing I ever did. On the day that I put that young boy out of, out of the house was the day that I walked from the fellowship into the program, the 12-step program of Al-Anon. And I was able to begin to really work the 12 steps for my own recovery. Up until that time, I was eating pie and drinking coffee at JoJo's and going to the Lakeside Conference and the Brazos Riverside Conference and Heart to Heart and Friend to Friend and Language of the Heart and all, I was running all over the place, and a sponsor direction. And I was so happy this afternoon that so many of the people that were here were here with their sponsors and their moms. And I mean, I was just like in awe of all that because if it wasn't for strong sponsorship, I probably wouldn't have 38 years of recovery today. It was sponsors who helped me grow up in this program. And it is still having a sponsor today that I call on a regular basis because I know that I can still, when I'm in fear or when I'm in pain, I have stinking thinking. 
And so I can call her up and say, oh, have you got a few minutes? <laughs> and she goes, what's going on today? <laughs> but thank God I have somebody that, you know, I have sponsees. I have a sponsor. I have a home group. I got everything. I've got it all. On Wednesday morning, I do a book study with, with my friend Norma. And for an hour and a half, we read the big book. I have three girls that are freshly going through the steps, and we, they, we talk on the phone, or they come and sit in my kitchen. And we're doing the old Al-Anon 12 and 12, not Paths to Recovery or How Al-Anon Works, the old Al-Anon 12 and 12. It's simple, and it's meaty. And it's to the point. They've softened it up a little bit. I have an, if you can get hold of an old copy of the old Al-Anon 12 and 12, you have got something really special. And so I've got, I've got a lot going on in my life today. And do you know why? Because I know what I have been given in this program. And if I don't stay active, I know what I have to lose. And it is a precious gift. And I give it my all today. I give it everything. So life went on, and Scott got married. They moved to Florida. Stephen is, you know, Mr. AA. He, he ends up graduating from Texas A&M University. Didn't want to go, but because of a fourth step and a fifth step and being afraid of failure, he was encouraged, and he went to a small junior college. And then a couple of years later, my husband and I stood in the auditorium at Texas A&M University, and I watched my son get a degree. And it was an amazing, it was an amazing opportunity to watch the grace of God. And we will hear about the grace of God all weekend, the miracles that happen in this program. One of the things that happened early on, well, not early, it was kind of a number of years ago. I was listening to an old CD of a guy named Gene D, and he's gone to the meeting in the sky too. But in that CD, he talked about finding the evidence of God before we come into the program. And I thought, there is no such thing. I was a wreck. I mean, I was a shipwreck out there. I was mean and vindictive, and I hurt my children. And I was, I was just a, a, a mess. What do you mean, find the evidence of God before the program? So I did it out of spite. And the first thing that I remembered, the first thing that I remembered, I'm nine months and two days pregnant. I'm standing at the, in the living room. I had called my husband a number of times, and I says, I'm in labor, and you need to come home. I'll be there in a minute, Beverly. I'm, I'm right in the middle of something. And I could hear his fellow employees saying, Jesus, George, go home. You know. So I call again. <laughs> I'll be, I'll be there in a minute. I'm right in the middle of something. I'm just finishing it up. And I'm, I'm like, I'm in labor and the doctor's waiting for me. Ali said, I'll be there. Well, I'm standing at the door waiting, which is what we do. <laughs> We're really good about waiting. And um, up comes the Crema Weaver milkman. And he's got his little tin basket, and he's got four little quarts of milk in there. And he comes up to my door, and the screen was covered in box elder bugs. Hate those things. But you couldn't hardly see through them. And he looks in there, and he goes, lady, are you OK? And I go, no. I'm in labor, and my husband won't come home from work and take me to the hospital. And he goes, you know what? I got four little kids under the age of five. And if he's not here in the next 10 minutes, you're going to the hospital in a milk truck. 
Now, I want you to know that at the time that happened, it was the most embarrassing, humiliating thing I could ever thought. As I was looking for the evidence of God, I know that God dressed up in a Creamer Weber milk uniform <laughs> and came to get me. And it, I mean, so it wasn't just that. That opened up the floodgate to me knowing about more situations and more. And on a daily basis today, it is my great joy to look for the evidence of God. I have looked for the evidence of God. It happens all the time, all the time. And so as time went on, the kid got married. They had a baby. I didn't think they should. None of my business, but they did. Brought a little baby into a very progressed alcoholism, drug addiction family. When the baby was... Um, Six months old, my son got sick with what we thought was pneumonia. And it turned out, after 10 days in the hospital, he called me when he got home and he says, I'm in full-blown AIDS, that was pneumocyst pneumonia. This was 1988 when the treatment for AIDS was nothing but primitive. The treatment was difficult and painful and it, was, it, it had no promise, it had no hope at all. They gave my son a year to live. I had just gotten my father from Santa Barbara, California. He was dying of multiple myeloma. And at that moment, I had started to have this fragile but, but growing relationship with a God of my understanding. And you promised me that God would never give me anything more than I could handle. And I trusted you. I believed you. But I've got a dad dying of cancer and a son dying of AIDS and a six-month-old baby. And I'm thinking to myself, this really is more than I can handle. This really is. And I called Sheila's mom, and I told her what was going on, and she said to me, you write a gratitude at the top of your journal page every single day. Because she says, every meeting you go to, you say the Lord's Prayer. And it says, give us this day our daily bread. And she said, do you know what daily bread is? And I said, not really. She says, it is God going to take care of you every step of the way. And then the next thing that I was taught during that time was to put a pretend hula hoop around me and to look down at that hula hoop on the floor and say, look down at my shoes in the inside of the hula hoop and say, at this moment, everything is okay. And later on, in the, in, as I went through the steps and I grew stronger, my dad passed away, I had no amends to make. I had had nine years of program and I was the best daughter that that man could have ever wanted. And I did everything that needed to be done to make him as happy and to feel as welcome and as comfortable in our home as I possibly could. He no sooner passed away in February and my son came back from Fort Lauderdale, Florida. With a, with a wife who was determined she wasn't gonna love me. But I had a program by then, and they stayed with us for a few months, two months, I think, until they got a place to live. Maybe it was only a month, until they could get an apartment together, which was difficult with him without a job and her without a job, and they had no money. Um, and so I got some instruction from people that helped me. If this was a normal kid and he didn't have alcoholism, what would you do? And sometimes that gives us the freedom to stop the enabling and to look at the situation in its reality and say, what would I do if it wasn't alcoholism? And this situation called for my help 
we needed to help. And we did, and um, got them in an apartment. And in those few days that they lived with us, my daughter-in-law, on the day they moved out, left me a bouquet of flowers and a love letter. And that was from a girl who walked in, determined she wasn't even going to unpack that moving van because she hated me, because I had learned how not to enable. And I detached with love, and she didn't like that, to a girl who said, thank you for everything. I love you. So that was that love story. My dad died. I had no amends to make. I went through four years of uh, not dealing with my son's death at all. He died in February of 93. So we're supposed to like process grief and you know be, allow ourselves as much time as we need to grieve. And I went into that, into that fantasy life and I stayed there for four years. And at the end of the four years, I mean, I was like gone from morning till night. I was not there at all. I was functioning. It looked from the outside like I was okay, but here and here, I was not home. And one day, four years, four and a half years, after my son passed away, I looked at his baby picture on the wall, and I was able to say out loud, he's never coming back. And from that point on, I began to deal with the fact that he wasn't coming back and, and, and process that grief. Because if you don't grieve in, in the time that it happens, you're going to do it sometime, and it's going to be, it's going to be messy. Can be, I mean, grief is messy no matter what. Grief is messy no matter what. So time went on. My husband and I had a business. I had golden retrievers. I got two of them registered to do therapy work. I'm very dyslexic. I ended up working with those dogs in the Flower Mound Library in a program called Sit, Stay, Read, and we read to dyslexic children. And it was a wonderful opportunity, a wonderful time of life. Time went on. My husband and I had a business. We worked together for 30 years. And um, he retired when we were, he was 80 and I was 71. And um, he, by that time, was diagnosed with COPD. And it was pretty progressed. We, the last several years that we were working, he was working on oxygen. And, um, but I'll tell you what, he was, um, he did it anyhow. So we have the ability to overcome a lot. And, and not say, I can't. I always would think of that little thing about the little engine, I can, I can, I can, and I do that, you know. So time went on, my husband's illness progressed, and in November, early November of 2017, on the second day of November, I lost one of my Goldens. The day after Thanksgiving, my husband was sick all through Thanksgiving, and on the Sunday after Thanksgiving 2017, I, I went, I, my husband wasn't breathing very well. I went into the bathroom and he was slumped over the counter and he says, Bev, I don't know what I'm gonna do, I can't breathe. And I says, well, we're gonna go, we're going to emergency, you gotta be taken care of. So that started the first of a long series for the next four months, he was in six ambulances and four hospitals, five hospitals. He celebrated his 37th AA birthday on February 23rd. Everything in my family with my men happens in February. On February 23rd, he, he celebrated his AA birthday at the Flower Mound Presbyterian Hospital. And he said to me, he says, I'm not going to make it to 38. And I knew he was right. I mean, we know. We know those things. And the next morning, February 24th, the doctors walked in. And they said to me, we have done everything we could do. He had been in ICU. He had been in a long-term 
um, what they call a step-down ICU, um, five weeks there. It was grueling for both of us. And I would look in the mirror and I'd think I was, you know, I could see the stress, I could see the pain, I could see myself, you know, and what was happening, I couldn't sleep. And, you know, he was, uh, it was just, it was just hard times. It was those days, but I relied on the daily bread because by now I knew that that works. On February 24th, they said the only thing left is hospice. So they have a nice hospice program across the street. And I said, my husband is not going into another hospital. He'll come home. And they set up a hospital bed in my living room. And for the next two weeks, I had the great privilege and honor to take care of my husband. And he passed away on March 11th, on March 10th um, of last year. And um, it was, um, I made a promise that no matter what, I was going to stay in the moment and walk through this grief no matter what, no matter what and um ooh. um <laughs> and i can tell you that i did i i did nine days after he passed away i was rubbing my stomach and i found something in there that was pretty obviously not one of my um one of my organs and um i ended up um in the first week of may having what was supposed to be a very simple surgery 20 minutes you'll be out of here by noon uh two days lay on the couch you're going good to go, you can start walking again. And when they got, got in there, they found out that what they thought they knew, they didn't know, and it was something much worse. And it was a four-hour surgery, and I was in the hospital six days. And um, Al-Anon stepped up. Al-Anon walked in and took care of my dogs, moved into my house and took care of my dogs, my plants, my mail, my yard. Al-Anon stayed with me the first night of the surgery. Al-Anon came every day. One of my buddies came every day, brought a novel, and never said a word to me. Because, you know, you just need, after you have a big surgery like that, you don't want to be, like, chatting, right? Um, I'm, so I have never been one to be able to ask for help. I'm an I-can-do-it kind of a girl. And... Anyhow, so this next, this last year was a growing thing, and um, asking for help. And the other thing is, is to ask myself, who am I? I met that man when I was 18 years old. We were married for almost 57 years. He passed away when I was 77. I don't know who I am. But I do know that I am a child of God, and I, and I am growing into my new self and finding out that I'm as stronger than I thought I was, that I have more courage than I ever believed possible. I know how to put a lawnmower together. <laughs> I can change the air filter in my Jeep. I, I mean, I know how to use a hammer and a screwdriver. I put up a smoke alarm. And I'm like, wow. And that doesn't make me who I am, but what it does is it reestablishes the idea that, oh, I need to call somebody to do that. I don't want to call anybody. Maybe I can do it. No, and I can do it. But I also know that I can ask for help. And that's the wonderful thing about it, because there isn't one person in this room, if I said this weekend, will you help me, that you wouldn't say, yes, what do I need? But the thing is, most of us are afraid to ask. We are afraid to ask for help, whether it's to ask for a sponsor, whether it's a Whatever it is, ask for help, because God will guide you to the exact person.
person, to the exact place, to the exact thing, if we just remember one thing, that we are a child of God, and that we stand in the sunlight. Thank you.